Let us read now from Judges chapter 8, verses 18 to 35. This is what Holy Scripture says. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so are they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my sons will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoils. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that had been around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Oprah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son and called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Oprah of the Abizarites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And open to the book of Judges and Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. If that hymn is new to you and you had to think a little bit more about the tune than the words, I would encourage you to take some time this afternoon to read through the words to that hymn because it is an excellent reflection on the heart of idolatry and how we, even as Christians, have this tug in our heart to turn back to the things God has made rather than to God himself. And if you do that enough in your own Christian life, you might begin to wonder, can God ever use me? (laughs) Can God ever really use me in this life, knowing what I know about my own heart, my own stubbornness, my own failings, my own stumblings, my own weakness, my own idolatries? Can I be useful? in the kingdom of God. Now, this man Gideon and the account of his life is full of many interesting things. We had the 300 guys lapping water like dogs, the angel of the Lord slash Yahweh, uh, the overhearing of an enemy's dream. Hopefully we've been able to make some sense of those things, but as we get to the end of the account of his life, uh, fair warning, everything just gets a little more bizarre and a little more complicated. In fact, some of my commentaries on the book of Judges just skip this part. <laughs> they, just, they don't even say they're skipping, they just skip it because uh, people read it and they're not entirely sure what is exactly going on. There are parts of your Bible that are extremely clear. 
When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, there's no debating what that means. Jesus says the only way to get to heaven is through him. There are no other saviors. There's no other way to be saved. That's pretty clear and obvious. But then there are other parts of our Bible that are a little more complicated. They're not as clear. And in those parts, we're going to ease off our dogmatism a little bit and suggest what we think it means. The end of Gideon's life in the book of Judges is really one of those parts of your Bible. There are not many of them, but this is one of them. And so I'm going to give you what amounts to my best suggestions as to what is taking place in this part of his life. I'm not trying to avoid anything, by the way. I'm not doing what some of my books did and just skip it. Um, I'm really intent on preaching through a whole book of the Bible, so we're going to look at it. Uh, I'm, not a, like, I'm not trying to get out of studying hard, trust me. It was a very hard study week. Um, I just want to be honest that there are simply some things in the Scripture that because of some little obscurities or omissions in the narrative, we're just not entirely sure what is taking place. But that being said, I'm very happy to lay out for you what I think is happening here. And as we do that, I think you will find three encouragements for your own life, especially if you're feeling like, yep, I'm prone to idolatry. I don't really know if I can be useful to God at any point in my life. Let these three things be an encouragement to you. Number one is this. God can use weak people. Now, we've seen this all through the life of Gideon. We're picking up Gideon's story after the big battle where he eliminates the Midianites. And then he goes to Sukkoth and Penuel, remember that, the the Israelite towns, and he teaches them a lesson because they didn't throw their support behind the judge God had provided, behind Gideon. And 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 he does that. When he goes to Sukkoth and Penuel, he's got somebody in tow with him, remember? The kings of the Midianites. And he's he's forcing them to watch what he's doing to his own people. Why is he doing that? Because it was vital for both Jew and Gentile to understand that this great delivery came about by the hand of Yahweh, not the hand of Gideon. So we pick up the narrative in verse 18. He said to Zeba and Zelmanah, these are the kings of the Midianites, the defeated kings, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother, as Yahweh lives, L-O-R-D, caps, all cap, capital, right? As Yahweh lives, the Lord lives. If you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Now, there is a backstory to this event that is not recorded in your Bible. This Tabor incident with the brothers of Gideon is not related to the battle that Gideon just fought. It is something that occurred before Gideon was called and commissioned. How do we know that? Well, we're pretty sure of that because of where it is, Tabor. In the, in the battle that just took place with Gideon against the Midianites, none of it took place at Tabor. So it seems like what Gideon is doing is he's referencing something historical, something that took place in the past. And because of that, that means that the murder of his brothers happened before God called Gideon. And we don't know anything about it other than what's said right here. Adding to the fogginess at the moment is the question that Gideon asks. Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? Where are the dead men? That's a weird question. Now, it could be a mocking kind of question. Like he's, he's looking at the two kings that he's about to kill, and he says to them, where are those dead men? Because you're about to join them wherever they are. But the question could be also be translated from where or whence those men. That's probably the more likely one. And either way, Gideon knows what he is asking. He knows his brothers are dead. And it seems like he's making sure that Zeba and Zalmanah, the kings of the Midianites, understand 
exactly who it was they killed at Tabor and exactly who those people were connected to. Gideon, Israel's new judge. The fact that the two kings of Midian do remember the brothers of Gideon might mean that Gideon's family was one of influence or importance in the community. Ziba and Zalmanah tell Gideon that just like Gideon, his brothers had the appearance or bearing of royalty. Did you see that? Like kings, the sons of kings. Now, we'll come back to that in a few moments, but it's important to observe that Gideon's brothers were not just some, you know, rando, went to the wrong neighborhood, uh, Abiezrites, and got killed by the kings Ziba and Zalmanah. Ziba and Zalmanah tell Gideon that just like him, his brothers looked like kings. But the really big important thing in that statement by Ziba and Zalmanah that might help to explain the start of this story of Gideon is the fact that they were killed. In other words, Gideon was called by the angel of the Lord to go against the kings of Midian who had killed already all his brothers. Now that puts into a different light the calling of Gideon, doesn't it? We don't know how many brothers Gideon had. These were likely his older brothers, but they had interacted with these kings, Ziba and Zalmanah, and they had been killed. And I think that builds for us a little more sympathy for the whole putting out the fleece. <laughs> because you're not just being told, go against the invaders. You're being told, go against the invaders who killed all your older brothers. It's kind of like a third-string quarterback being told to get into the game because the first two guys, number one and number two, have both been carried off on stretchers. And if you're the third string guy, you're looking at them like, really? Can't we just call the game? I don't think I want to go out there because I think the same thing's going to happen to me. And Gideon, maybe that's how he's thinking, but he, he does it. He enters the game, as it were, and he leads the team to a remarkable come-from-behind victory. And now he's looking in the eyes of these two conquered kings 100,000 plus of their own soldiers had killed each other. All the rest of them who had ran away, they'd been captured or killed. These two kings are utterly decimated. And what's going to become with these two kings? Well, generally, when you capture an opposing king, you keep him alive and exact tribute out of him. You, you let him go back to his country, but you put this heavy taxation on him to benefit your country. Or you might do something like uh, Judah and Simeon did when they first came into the promised land and they came to the area of Bezek. They captured Adani Bezek. Remember, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes and he gathered scraps under the table because that's what he had done to 70 kings before him. Maybe Gideon had something similar in mind. Or perhaps Gideon wanted Israel to understand why he was going to do something different than that. Now that he's shown Sukkoth and Penuel the deliverance of God and punished these fellow Israelites for not having faith in God and not following the judge, what does judge mean? The Savior that Yahweh had provided, he opens up court proceedings with Ziba and Zalmanah. Uh, first comes the charge, that's verse 18. He said to Ziba and Zalmanah, what are, where are the men? Uh, or from where the men uh, that you killed at Tabor. Then comes the evidence, which is by way of confession, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And then verse 19 is the judgment. He said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As Yahweh lives, if you'd saved them alive, I would not kill you. I'm going to assume, in my understanding of this passage, that the murder of Gideon's brothers was some kind of atrocity, some kind of great injustice. And if so, I think Gideon has these two kings confess to that as an example of the rampant injustices the Midianites were committing across Israel all the time. Rather than try them for every single crime, all crimes against humanity as it were, he, he tries them for one. Remember back in chapter 6 when the story is opening up, the author tells us uh, in the setting there that uh, chapter 6, verse 6, Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. 
How were they brought low? The hordes of enemies would come in, gather up all your food that you had worked to produce. They had carted away. You were left destitute. You were left hiding in the caves. Israel was oppressed by Midian. And the Midianites basically came into town and they did whatever they felt like doing. So why bring up his brothers? Here is my personal Pastor Paul speculation, all right? Maybe this, something like this is what happened. Perhaps the Abiezrites, Gideon's clan, asked Joash, Gideon's dad, who seems to be a man of standing in the community. He's got the temple of, or not the temple, but the altar to Baal in his house in the Asherah pole. Maybe, maybe they come to him and they say, look, send an emissary, send a little contingent to the kings of the Midianites and plead for mercy. We're dying here. And maybe Joash sent his older sons, not Gideon, and maybe those sons met with the Midianite kings at Tabor, and Zeba and Zalmana, those evil kings, rather than receive them, killed them. It was an atrocity. It was an injustice. We don't know that. But what we can be sure of is that they were wrongfully murdered and that this one case is evidence enough for the death penalty. So verse 20, he said to Jether, his firstborn, this is Gideon, rise and kill them. <laughs> uh, he's a boy. Uh, if you're 12 years old or younger, raise your hand and you're, you're a boy, 12 years old or younger. Yeah. yeah, it would be pretty scary, wouldn't it? to like grab a sword and have to kill a man. It's terrifying. And that boy just stood there. He didn't do anything. Because he was afraid. And Ziba and Zalmanah said, rise yourself. They're looking at Gideon. And fall on us. As the man sow his strength. <laughs> so Jethro's just a poor little boy when Gideon tells them to kill these two kings. I mean, they would have held the kings and probably he wants his son to behead them. That's kind of how these things go. And probably, we don't know this for sure, probably Gideon wants to do that so that it will be said of the great Ziba and Zalmanah, they were killed by a boy. It would be disgrace on their memory. But that boy's scared and that boy doesn't move. So to add even more guilt to Ziba and Zalmanah, we hear them saying, as a man sow his strength. This is ancient uh, machismo. <laughs> as a man sow his strength. Call yourself a man, send in your boy to do a man's job, that kind of thing. And so Gideon got up and he did it. The battle's over and the victory's won. But in that whole process, I think we gain a new appreciation for our man Gideon. In one sense, the historical account of his life is ending on a similar note to which it began. The author is pointing out just how bad things really were in Israel and just how weak and fearful a man Gideon was. And yet, God used Gideon. Christian, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish. Foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In God's math, the less you are, the more useful you become. Idols never invite you 
to think less of yourself. Or quite the opposite. They're always telling you how wonderful you are, how beautiful you are, how amazing you are. But God is a straight shooter. He saves the weak, the low, the despised, the are-nots. So that when we boast, we boast in the Lord. God can use weak women and weak men. God prefers to use weak women and weak men so that his name gets all the glory. And if that sounds strange to your ears, then you have not thought about the cross of Jesus Christ. God can use weak people. Number two. God can use recovering idol-aholics. I made up the word. <laughs> Apparently, there are many aholics, shopaholics, workaholics, sleepaholics. The basic idea is that unless you intervene, you're going to be utter utterly controlled by shopping, working, sleeping. But you can intervene, <clears throat> and part of the way you intervene is by admitting that unhealthy behavior. All of us were born idolaters. We worship idols. And much of the Christian life is simply rejecting what we actually desire, the idol, and replacing it with devotion to the real God. But, for example, even the best recovering workaholic may stumble here and there and have to be reset well, then how much more so those Christians who are seeking to abandon the idols of the heart? We see Gideon here, and he comes really close to relapsing. I'm taking this sort of section here as a temptation to a new idolatry. This is verse 22. Uh, the people come along and say, be our king. Uh, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you. So things start to get even more complex here. Israel says to Gideon, rule over us, be our king. For, did you see that, verse 22? Because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. So they give credit to Gideon for what the Lord has done. The very thing that when God, by God cutting the army down to 300 guys who happened to lap the water, the very thing that this was supposed to clarify, Yahweh is the one who delivered Israel, not Gideon. And I think Gideon could perceive this in their statements, and perhaps that's why he hesitates to accept their offer of kingship. Israel doesn't want the kind of king that Yahweh wants. But man, if you're Gideon, being king might be nice, right? I mean, is Gideon wavering here? Is he about to relapse into a different form of idolatry? As readers, we, we start to wonder now if the recording of the confession of Ziba and Zalmanah was serving something of a dual purpose, a hint of something that was to come. Back in verse 18, so they say to Gideon, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. Now, that statement proved their guilt and their deserved death, but maybe, maybe it also cracked the door open or served as a hint for this whole kingship thing. Zeban Zalmana said, you and all your brothers appeared to us like sons or princes of king, of a king. You can, you can, you can disagree with me. I think I met a family once who had royal bearing. I just When you were around them, uh, the parents, the children, you just had this sense of like they could be royalty. Like I, I, I don't think they are, but if somebody came along and told me that's, a, that's an actual king, I'd go, I believe it. They just, they just seem like it. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's what's going on here. I'm not really sure. And, and maybe the Israelites overheard what Ziba and Zalman has said. They thought, oh, that's a good idea. Let's get ourselves a king. What's important for us to observe is that Gideon is at a crossroads here. 
He's a judge. He is not a king. Now, that doesn't mean kings are a bad idea. It just means Gideon has not been called by God to be a king. He's been called by God to be a judge. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, Moses wrote, when you, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and they say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. It was never wrong for Israel to have a king. But a human king needed to rule on God's terms. He is to be picked by God, not by the people. So it can sound good, pious even, when Gideon responds the way he does. I will not rule over you, verse 23, and my son will not rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you. Very pious, very humble, maybe. But I think Gideon's a little bit conflicted. Um, He named one of his sons Abimelech which means my father the king. So I have a son named Will, and it would be really strange if I named my son my father the king. Every time everybody, because names have meaning. And so every time people look at Gideon's son, who's the king in that equation? Gideon names his son, my father is the king. That's problematic on a lot of levels, not the least of which is that Abimelech is the son of Gideon's Canaanite uh, concubine. So when you put all of this together, it seems possible that Gideon was at least toying with the idea of becoming the king. Now, thankfully, it never comes to pass. I would like to think that this is an example of a man rejecting an idol. In this case, the idol of power or fame or wealth that kingship would provide. And if I'm right about that, it shows the real heart of a recovering idol-aholic. There's an internal wavering. He recognizes he needs the Lord's help. And he says the right thing even if he has a little bit of trouble believing the right thing. Maybe you feel like you have an addiction. And whatever that pull is, I would encourage you to remember Gideon. He said the right thing at the right time. He said it. He wasn't perfect in all this. He names his son Abimelech. That's that's not such a good idea. But perhaps... What might help you most of all in fighting against your idols, in fighting against relapsing into idolatry, is to say what is true when the temptation comes. Maybe your idol is alcohol, to drink in excess. And so when that temptation comes, you say, look, alcohol, you're only going to dull my feelings. You will not alter reality. You don't fix anything. You are simply delaying the inevitable. Look that idol in the face and say what is true. Maybe you have an idolatry that involves sexual immorality. And so you look at that particular temptation in the face and you say, maybe out loud, you always promise more than you can possibly give. And in the process, you cause me to objectify people made in the image and likeness of God. You lead me to sin every time. Maybe your idolatry calls for lying or deception. And when you're tempted to lie, You look at that temptation right in the face and say, you know what, my lies never, ever fool God. They never lead to positive outcomes. I'm going to be a man of truth, a woman of truth. So after rejecting the kingship with his words, Gideon then like, it's not like the battle's over because he does something kind of strange. This, I'll call this the sorrowful stumbling. Verse 24, Gideon said to them, 
However, he didn't say however, but there's kind of an implied however here. I'm not going to be your king, but let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. So after you, you know, the battle's over, you go around with all the corpses and you pick all the valuables off them. And there's quite a lot. Ends up being 1,700 shekels of gold. That's about 45 pounds of gold. About the size of your typical gold bar. Take 20 iPhones, stick them together. All that is gold, worth well over a million dollars in today's currency. And then there's other stuff. There's the uh, crescent ornaments, pendants, purple garments, and the camel collars, which is all of great value. So Gideon, overnight, goes from being a destitute cave dweller to a very, very wealthy and powerful man. And that's a very big change. And not everybody can handle that kind of wealth and that kind of power. Verse 27, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel hoard after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Gideon was a recovering idolater who made a tactical error. Remember, he's a weak man. Even after he gets his audience with the angel of the Lord, he asks for a sign from the angel, fire out of the rock. He, he tore down his father's Baal altar, but did it at night. Uh, he he double-dipped on the whole fleece thing. And as we pointed out weeks ago, this is the Gideon who had lots of divine revelation at his disposal before the angel come, became. He's got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, probably got Job, a couple of the Psalms. He's got revelation. It's revelation that he was not acting upon. I mean, his first words to the angel of the Lord show that he's a Bible reader of some sort. Judges 6.13, Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, 6.13, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt, but now Yahweh has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian? In other words, Gideon knows the story of the Exodus, God's promises to Moses to have Joshua lead them into the promised land. And that means he knows about the covenant promises, how Yahweh would be a protector to Israel if they obeyed him. But Gideon was living in fear, not faith, when the angel found him. And when he's looking around, to him, everything seems lost. So that's why he's sneakily thrashing wheat in a wine press. To his human perception, everything looks lost and impossible. But the angel comes, gives him the call. He takes God at his word. He acts on what he knows is true, what God has revealed. And God brings about this truly miraculous victory. 300 guys, he, he decimates this massive army. And now everybody's looking at him and saying, Oh, rule over us, O oh mighty ruler. But Gideon knows the only reason this all worked out so well is that I had been given direct revelation from God, and then God had delivered. And now that the deliverance is accomplished, it appears that this direct revelation from God, this direct communication from God has stopped. Question. What might a timid man do if he felt like he might need God's direct messaging, direct information, direct communication in the future. What might he do? I'll tell you what he would do. He'd make an ephod. And you're like, what? <laughs> All right, what is an ephod? An ephod is a vest that is worn in the top covering by a priest. It is very ornate, and it is very particular, it is full of meaning. Yahweh designed an ephod for the high priest in Israel. If you were here for Exodus, maybe you remember Exodus 28. And it's, it's quite an ornate thing. It go, after all the other special clothes that the high priest wears, this goes on last. It has gold yarn in it, uh, gold chains, gold settings for the shoulder stones, gold rings, gold, gold, gold. Well, Gideon's got a lot of gold. He's got 45 pounds of it sitting right there. And attached to an ephod on the high priest, in the very front is this little pocket. And there are two things in the pocket. Do you remember what they are? 
It's called the breast piece of judgment. In the breast piece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and Thummim. What are these? And what are they for? We're never told in Exodus. It's just assumed we know. But we get an idea of what they're for when Joshua is getting ready to take over from Moses. This is Numbers 27, verse 21. And he, Joshua, shall stand before Eleazar, the priest. Eleazar is the high priest. Joshua will stand before him, and the priest shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before Yahweh. In other words, uh, strategic national military decisions could be determined by using the Urim and Thummim. Moses says, at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. So, this is something like casting lots, we think, but it's not like that. It's more than that because it didn't guarantee an answer every time you used it. Uh, like, you know, if you just roll the dice, like it's always going to give you an answer. But that's not true with Urim and Thummim. How do we know that? Uh, because when Saul was trying to get back in connection with the Lord, he went to the Urim and Thummim. And it says in 1 Samuel 28, 6, when Saul inquired of Yahweh, Yahweh did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So the Urim and Thummim were carried in the ephod of the high priest. Why am I pointing this all out? Because here's what I think might be going on with weak Gideon. It's the same thing that goes on with you and me when we think we need something more than God's word to direct us and help us make our decisions. A sign, a vision, a fleece, open doors, impressions, liver shivers. You don't need any of that because you have God's Word. But that Bible is not going to tell you which house to buy or which girl to marry or which boy to say no to. How often would we like a direct line to heaven? Is that what prompts Gideon to make an ephod? Gideon I think, is taking some of what he knows from God's written revelation, a gold vest with Urim and Thummim, and making his own ephod. And this ephod, with its own version of Urim and Thummim, I'm speculating, but I think that might have been there, might have been Gideon's very well-intentioned plan to keep connected to God, especially if a new enemy shows up and everybody's looking at you, the judge, for a solution. What are we going to do now, judge? We're not even sure that there was a functioning priesthood at this time in Israel's history. The Ark of the Covenant is bouncing around from place to place, and there's no explanation why. So perhaps the ephod is Gideon's liver shiver. It's a noble goal to stay connected to Yahweh, take your directions from Yahweh. But look again what happens with that ephod. The same thing that happens with anything we put in the place of God himself. Verse 27, Gideon made an ephod of it, put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. This is so sad. Gideon was ensnared by the thing he made to stay connected to Yahweh. Rather than serving as a direct line of communication to God, it became a functional replacement of God. It was worshipped. It was depended upon rather than the Lord. Have you ever noticed that all through the Scriptures, the people of God are spoken of as his bride or as those to whom he is betrothed? And that is why all through the scriptures, idolatry is described as spiritual adultery. Idol worship is committing adultery with God. In fact, the word used here in this phrase, all Israel hoard after, after the ephod, can just as easily be translated as all Israel prostituted themselves to the ephod. 
Men and women sometimes have the best of intentions. They want to do something, anything to get closer to God, to follow him more perfectly. But the moment they turn from divine revelation to superstitious divination, they open the door to spiritual fornication. It was not Gideon's place to make an ephod, to wear the ephod, to consult with God through Urim and Thummim of an ephod. He had good intentions to stay in communication with God, but he failed to use the means God had ordained his written revelation. And that helps verify something for us, and that is this. You can make an idol out of anything, even a supposedly good thing, even the thing that we think is going to help us in our relationship with God. Nothing and no one can, can take God's place on the throne of your heart. After his wife died, John Newton was writing A Sister in the Lord. We'll look at some of this tonight at our couples' night, uh, some of these quotes, but I'm just going to read you the one. I think it's in your song sheet there. You perhaps know, madam, from what you have read of mine and possibly from what you have seen in me, that my attachment to my dearest was great, yea, excessive, yea, idolatrous. Talking about his wife. It was so when it began. I think no writer of romances ever imagined more than I realized. She was to me precisely, how can I write it? In the place of God. By degrees, he who has the only right to my heart and who alone can fill it was pleased to make me sensible of his just claim on my heart and my idol was brought some steps lower down. Yet still I fear there was somewhat of the golden calf in my love from the moment that we joined our hands to the moment of separation, her death. John Newton was a godly man. And yet maybe it was his battles here with heart idolatry that led him to write the hymn we sang just before I preached. In the last line of that hymn, Lord, Save us from our golden calves. Our sin with grief we own. We would no more be yours by halves, but live to you alone. Who are you tempted to love more than God? Whose approval? would bring you the greatest satisfaction in life? What possession are you terrified of losing? What part of your heart do you hope no one ever sees? Answering any of these questions might lead you to your idol. You cannot be the Lord's by halves. You must give him all of your all. Do you remember in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the, that lovely little line about Aslan, the, the God symbol sort of in the stories? He is not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. One of the beautiful features in Lewis's work is the way he portrays Aslan as always taking so long to show up. And then doing something very surprising when he does. God has a way of remaining both predictable and unpredictable. He is predictable in the sense that he will not suffer your idols forever. He is very unpredictable in the ways and the times in which he will expose those idols to your heart. The fact is, in Gideon's case, While his heart was mostly redirected to Yahweh, the heart of the nation was not. For as long as Gideon was their judge, another 40 years, they give lip service to Yahweh. Look at verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. They raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. But that same word, prostituted, appears again in verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored or prostituted after the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. Uh, 
There will be people in hell forever who spent every Sunday of their human life in church. They sang the songs, they listened to the preaching, they mouthed through the words of confession, and they did not believe a single word of it. Is that you? Just because you're fooling us doesn't mean you're fooling him. The Lord sees not as a man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesus said to the Pharisees, those hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I mean, you think you're religious. You should have seen those guys. <laughs> All kinds of outwardly religious acts, religious words, religious clothes, and yet hearts that were full of death and destruction. They impressed everybody except the one person who mattered the most, God. Maybe you've impressed all of us. But even if you impress us for 40 years, you have not impressed God for four nanoseconds. He sees you just as you are. Lots of people in Gideon's day were playing like they were believers and trying to play their relationship with God. And they foolishly believed that the, the peace and prosperity they enjoyed for 40 years was the result of their fooling God. Verse 33, again, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again, whored after the Baals, made Baal Barith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember Yahweh their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show chesed, steadfast love, to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Israel turns back to Baal because it was to Baal, it was Baal to whom their hearts were loyal the whole time. This means that idolaters can hide in the church. Friend, if you're sitting there and you're feeling kind of uncomfortable at these things, maybe that's because you've been playing with your idols while you're trying to play God as a fool. I'm not totally sure, but I think a person could do this to the point where they actually believe two opposing things at once. They think they can be good with God, and they think their idols are going to get them to heaven. Friends, you cannot have both. It is God or mammon. You are either wheat or tare, sheep or goat. You are either on the narrow path or the broad path. It is always either or with God. It is one thing for a Christian to have a bad day and stumble back into their idolatry. It is altogether a different thing for a man or woman to prostitute themselves by whoring after another God, even as they are giving lip service to the real God. What about you? Have you repented from that sin? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Or are you a spiritual hooker? Repent from your half-hearted ways and call on Jesus to save you from your sins. He's your only hope. That takes us to the third and last thing, and it's short. God can even use a dead person. <laughs> I want to qualify that with all kinds of things. We'll get there. Verse 29, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon same guy, Jeroboam, Gideon. Remember Jeroboam, uh, one who contends with Baal. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son and called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Kids, do any of you, have a, do any of you keep a journal or a diary? That just means like you write down maybe at the end of the day, here's what I did today. These are fascinating things to read 20 years from now. <laughs> the things that interest you when you were seven are very different when you're 27. Lots of fun. On our last trip down to Indiana, I gathered up uh, some of my father-in-law's journals. I've been reading through those. I'm working on a little side project in my spare time about, anyway, I won't talk about that. But um, it just struck me the other night as I was reading through it how much his written words were rebuking, encouraging, instructing, and teaching me. I just read them. They were imparting wisdom. And all I want to say about Gideon here 
is that even though he struggled against all his idols and all his fears, just think for a moment about how much his life and his obedience to God has taught you. Think about how much the story of Gideon's life has challenged you, encouraged you, shaped you, and then ponder for a moment how much might your life be used of God in the lives of your family, your friends. I'm not saying everybody has to write a journal. My father-in-law's life would have been used in my life regardless of the journals. That's just an added bonus. What I'm saying is, I think, Christian, you need to live your life in a way that you play the long game. You're not just living for you. You're not just living for today. You're living for all those who are going to follow you. And your obediences, your, your self-denials, your repentances, they're all going to help and encourage those who come after you long after your life is over. That's all I want to say about that. But think about this. God can use weak people. God can use recovering idolaholics. And God can even use the memory of your life once you're with him in glory. That gives me hope because I am weak, I am a recovering idolaholic, and I'm 57. I got less left than is behind me. I hope because 114 doesn't sound very nice. But then I think about the Lord. He's strong, he's truth, and he's going to take me to himself where I will live forever with my king. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Until then, I think our prayer should be, Lord, make me as useful as I can be in this life for your kingdom. Amen. Let's pray together. So God, do your good work in us through this man Gideon's life. Thank you for recording it in your book. Thank you for reminding us in Hebrews 11 that he is an example of faith Thank you, Lord, for all that you could teach us. And I would pray, Lord, if there's, there's, there's some speculation in the things we've looked at today, wherever that is misleading or wrong, rub that out of our memories. Help us most of all just to see a man in his faith and to take great hope. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.